Hello, and welcome to Fireside with VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and I'm very excited to have Cindy Pandos from Illuminate Ventures on the podcast. Cindy, great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. So Cindy's background, I believe she started as a management consultant at Booz Allen and then eventually became a founder and CEO of a VC-backed company, Vivint Corporation, which was eventually acquired by a company that I believe was acquired by Oracle. Is that the right path? Yep. Of things. And so she knows so much about enterprise software that she's been called Queen B2B in the past. And Illuminate, I believe, focuses, we'll have Cindy introduce it, but focuses on almost being first institutional investor outside capital into companies exclusively in the enterprise SaaS, B2P, just enterprise space. Um, you nailed it. it. <laughs> that's right. And Should I, I add more? No, that was quite good. Thank you. And we met probably more than a decade ago in the Valley and, and you're still actively there. So thanks for coming on the podcast. And we have a lot of things we can get into. I do want to touch on what it was like being a woman in Silicon Valley years ago, dealing with these, what used to be way too many men VCs. And then now, now it's in fashion to be a woman VC and go out and raise a fund, but you've been at this for a long time. Um, but why don't we start with where you're at today? Why don't you introduce who is Illuminate Ventures? Sure. So Illuminate is, as you suggested, a seed stage institutional fund uh, focused in the enterprise software category. We're typically leading or co-leading anywhere from two to $5 million size rounds um, at uh, as the first institutional round of investment in a company. I, I'll stop there because what's a little bit different about our version of seed is probably important to, to talk about. We're not generally looking for pre-product companies. Um, we're generally looking for what we would call further along companies. And they can be further along for any one of a variety of reasons. And, and there are different elements of further along. It's not always about revenue. It could be a team that's taking intellectual property and spinning it out of a large corporation. It could be a team that worked together in an IT service business, identified a repeatable business problem together and said, we're gonna go create a SaaS software company because we're not stupid. We know that my IT service business is gonna get a 1X revenue multiple and my uh, SaaS company is gonna, get a, gonna have a 10 to 15X multiple. We'd rather do one of those. Uh, we like smart people. We like those kinds of um, uh, sort of proven ideas where there's already been some demonstration of product market fit. And um, because we're willing and not just willing, but interested in doing those further along companies, we also see some very interesting attributes in those businesses that make them look a little bit more like what our friends who are in the mid-market buyout space are looking for. Um, except earlier in the process um, than what a typical seed stage investor is looking for. So I, I hear you saying that uh, revenue is not the only metric of stage, but if we were to use revenue as a metric of stage, what kind of what kind of revenue traction does the company have? And as you said, you're often the first investor to be investing before uh, you know it comes in. So it's probably it can't be that late. Well, so we have invested in companies with zero revenue, but spinning out intellectual property or spinning out a 10-person team 
Um, we've done that for sure. So zero revenue, but some other element of the business is further along. If, as we said, uh, as, as you say, you know, put that aside, if there was none of the rest of that, what would we be looking for in terms of revenue? It's probably, you know, not the 10K an MRR company. It's probably the one that might be at um, 30 or 50 or 75K where it's not one customer. Because we, we've seen that too, of course, right? Where especially in the enterprise world, you can have um, a false positive, frankly. That's the issue we're dealing with here where yep. one large corporation signs up for a half million dollar contract. You know, we're, uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon. I learned you know, the importance of uh, a lot of different things, but part of that was uh, the analytics tools that I learned there. And I somehow learned the fact that you really don't have a trajectory until you have at least three points on a curve. And right. so, so we're looking for a little bit more validation of, of one type or another. Yeah, I mean, for, for us, it's similar. What if, if I wanna make an introduction and leverage our LP base to help this company, um, one customer is not really a pattern. One customer is not really a repeatable sales cycle that dropping venture money plus network will, will necessarily, you know, five, 10 exit really, really fast and get introduced to the next funding round. So having, having more than one enterprise customer helps prove that there's a pattern here and, and we could, uh, augment and amplify what you've got, you, you know, with that. And you being a founder of your own fund, first time fund, not a spin out, although you had a successful outcome and you went through the joys of raising venture capital yourself, um, <laughs> you, you probably didn't go straight to institutional investors. So I would imagine that there's people that knew you that, that have known you that started writing checks behind you. To, to, have you developed uh, an LP network that differentiates Illuminate in your mind? Oh, for sure. So um, it, it, the, the progress from not having a fund to having a fund was a little bit different in that I joined, first of all, after the company I founded, Vivant, was acquired by a public company, I chose to go on the venture side. Oh, that's not even true. I unintentionally went on the venture, venture side when I started getting phone calls from all my VC friends who wanted help. And it was, you know, a time frame where there were a lot of founders who were super young, didn't have much experience, um, or were there even VCs who came not from operating backgrounds, but came more from the financial world, and yet were doing these early stage investments. Back then, there was no such thing as seed. It was Series A rounds were the first rounds. And um, so I started getting phone calls from many of my VC friends. I effectively became a venture partner with teams at Scale Ventures and uh, USVP and more David Isle and others. I really learned the trade from, from some great, great investors. Joined a firm called Outlook Ventures for four years that had a very traditional Series A kind of a fund um, that was doing both enterprise and... Um, Wait, the founder of Outlook, isn't he? Um, I know you've got a place in uh, Napa. Yeah. Wasn't um, the founder of Outlook... Uh, has a winery, or was it Randy? Um, maybe oh, Randy Haken. Yes. Um, yeah, but his winery is actually in the East Bay. Okay. I okay. I okay. I mean, that's where his home is. He he lives out um, out that direction, and so I think he was working with a team out of I think Livermore or out you know where okay, Wendy. which is a fun which is a fun un, you know a lot of people touristic people don't know about the whole Livermore wine scene. That's a great place. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it totally <laughs> is. And Randy's was a, a great mentor and friend, still a good friend. He's, he's a wonderful guy. So I had an opportunity to start building track record there and um, made some, some great investments and some, some losers did both. Um, but that was just a great apprenticeship along with you know, the other things. But when I started, I didn't start with LPs. I started with my own capital. And so I literally warehoused about four investments, I think it was, four or five. And so um, explain, define what, for some of our listeners, what does that mean to warehouse an investment? Well, I wrote my own check and under the assumption that when I raised a fund, I would offer an opportunity to my LPs to buy into those companies. So you warehouse it until the point in time when you bring it out of the warehouse and into the fund and uh, enable your LPs to be a part of that. So I did that. Um, two of the companies actually were acquired before I even raised the fund. So I think we ended up with three companies that came into that portfolio when we closed that. That was our very first fund. We gave it um, a name, not a Roman numeral. And, and you know, uh, this was my version of intellectual integrity. You didn't give a $2 million fund a Roman numeral. Uh, now, of course, I've confused everyone because effectively, We've invested out of three funds, but the most recent one is Roman numeral two. <laughs> okay. Well, in my, you know, I think technically, you know, and, and if you're going through the kind of scrutiny with an institutional investor, you are investing out of your third VC fund, which yeah. I would call what I, what I would call fund three. And that the fact that it was a $2 million fund in totality, you know, it's interesting to see what did that turn into and what are the metrics on that fund and how different uh, they're, they're extraordinary. They're extraordinary. I'm super proud of it. We'll likely end up with a 10 bagger fund out of, out of that fund. And we're already have returned more than one and a half X. We're sitting at somewhere over six and a half X. So it's going to be an extraordinary fund. But. So what was the timing on, um, on the sale of Vivant? When was that? How oh gosh, that, that was during the dot com. Just, just at the tail end of the dot-com bubble, thank God. Thank God, um, okay. And, yeah, thank God, because, and then of course I worked with them, you know, for some time to transition the business and all of that. But, um, you know, we could have ended up with a big goose egg. Many of our competitors um, um, actually went bankrupt. Uh, we were acquired by a public company whose stock started going like this. And of course we had received stock. So it's not like it was a, you know, the world's best outcome, but it was well, you, but you were able to start selling that stock in That's a reasonable, right. yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. And, so, and so I, I had similar paths to you. So I had a $1.2 billion IPO that did not survive the lockup. And you know, mm. you know the time. So, you know, I lots do. of people like me and that gave me an appreciation for the secondary market that not every fearless child has or adult who's never struck out. But um, I, I remember VCs calling me up saying, We've, we're unplugging some of our portfolio. We're funding up others as if no one else is gonna invest with us, like a credit crunch. I need an operator to raise the next round. So I, I got pulled in for like fundraising. It looks like you were doing probably all kinds of operational stuff, but the, the early 2000s were a time when VCs and founders started working together in that way collaborating in really interesting ways. Yeah. And then I, I joined Outlook Ventures in 2004, invested with them until 2005, 
2009, I should say, and formed Illuminate in 2010, but I had already started warehousing investments. And okay. so we, we raised our, that first spotlight fund was a 2011 fund. And, um, and I had about half of it committed at that point. And, um, and then followed that with our fund Roman numeral one in 2013 um, and 2017 Roman numeral two. All of those were single GP funds. Um, and then Jennifer Savage, my partner, joined me a little over three years ago. She had been the VP of products that I had recruited into that company I founded. So we've known each other 20 years plus. And she's she's up in Seattle, is that right? It is, yeah. Right. So she's right. she's got, you know, she is uh she's a rock star. She she's just completely a great person, a good friend, a rare talent, and has had extraordinary success in the enterprise world. She from our company. Um, one of the companies that uh, I was asked to help out um, by the team at Scale Ventures was a company called Placeware. You might remember them back when web conferencing did not include video. It was, <laughs> remember that those days, WebEx and Placeware. So I helped them out effectively going in as kind of interim CEO. I, I stole Jennifer away from the company that had acquired us. So she became um, head of products at Placeware when it was acquired by Microsoft. So that's how she ended up in the Seattle area. But she stayed because she then was uh, recruited to DocuSign, which I don't know if you know it was headquartered there originally. Well, well I knew I knew Keith Croc from Ariba Software. Ah, that was long later. He yeah, yeah. and it was quite late. When I saw him coming in, and, and I remember I met him in his office in San Francisco right when he had joined. And that would have been 2011, 2012 okay. maybe. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so Jennifer had already made her way to DocuSign and was leading product marketing there. Okay. And then she she spent four or five years there. Then she went to Smartsheet, uh, helped take them public as well. And then she went to a company called FlowRoute that was acquired in a PE-backed M&A. And uh, she, by then she had already joined our business advisory council. And I haven't really said anything about that, but that's a group that we started at the inception of the firm, even before I closed our first fund, in fact. Uh, it started with nine people. It's grown to a little under 50. Um, across this group, they sit on over 100 public company boards. They sit on more than 250 private company boards, and they're all people from the enterprise software category. Right. And most when, of them are LPs. And, and when I asked you the first question, I thought that that was what you were going to say is that um, yeah. you didn't go straight to institutions. You kind of had to go to people that knew you. They just happened to be 50 people on this, you know, so all here's those what's interesting, Andrew. It's, it's not the same for a woman. They were not 50 people that knew me. In fact, Two-thirds of the people on this business advisory council I had never met before I reached out and asked them to be members of our advisory council. Oh, so really? it's a little different than you might think. And, and you know, some of this is, um, I don't even know exactly what to attribute it to. There are a variety of different elements to this. Certainly, I had people who knew me and trusted me as LPs. But what would happen is they would then say, you need to meet so-and-so. You need to meet so-and-so. Right. And, and that's how it came about. But as a woman in tech, there are so many fewer people that are in your natural affinity group. Uh, and that is, that's just been true 
um, from day one. I mean, I, I look at, you know, I'm a Carnegie Mellon grad, as I mentioned. My graduating class was 12% women, 12. But, but Carnegie Mellon, I think of as the total tech, you know, engineering capital. It's the IIT of the United States, you know? This but, was a so master's in business. Yeah, but even- MBA. Even, yeah, <laughs> even MBAs used to be, I got my MBA in the late 90s, and I think um, women were, they were trying to get more women into the MBA, into the MBA world. It was, it was almost artificially built up to 33% when it naturally probably would have been much lower, I think. That, um, I uh, maybe, it's 50, 50, maybe it's 50-50 <laughs> now. It's not, it's not. It's, it's more not. like, it's not. And, and honestly, uh, you know, it needs to become more attractive to women. And, and so I would say the, you know, for me, I, I was, I had a liberal arts undergrad. I made a very conscious decision that I was going to go to a very quantitative program to earn credibility. That was my choice. And so I applied at Chicago and Wharton and Carnegie Mellon. And I don't think I ever applied to MIT or Stanford. I probably didn't. I grew up in Michigan in a small town. I didn't know about these places, right? <laughs> okay. and, and I'm not kidding. I mean, I wish I was, but I never even applied. And um, But I'm not at all regretful of Carnegie Mellon. In fact, I'm very appreciative because going through this super quantitative program, uh, which indeed it was at the time, it, it, I, I, I kind of felt when I got through the whole thing that if I could do that, I could do anything. And I, I just had no fears. I had uh, I had built a level of self confidence that absolutely had not been there. And and, and my my undergrad was at Michigan. It was no slough off kind of a school. Um, but you went from being a poet to a quant, and that's what the, I was I considered a poet when I arrived at Georgetown for my MBA. And and so I actually was learning stuff. Some people had done this in undergrad, and they said we're just going deeper into the same you know painful quants. Yeah, not at all, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so we have that in common. But um, but I do think, you know, I remember when I was raising um, Roman numeral one, which was, a, you know, target $20 million fund, and, and that's what we raised. And I talked to some guys who were raising funds at the same time, and I said, well, how did you do it? It was one in particular who was in New York, and I'll never forget the conversation because he said, well, I'm a Harvard grad, and right. I went to my class reunion, and I told all 800 of my friends that I was raising this fund. And by the end of reunion, I had my first 10 million committed and then the rest was easy. So I kind of went, okay, so what percentage of those commitments came from women? And the answer was zero, zero, not a nickel. I said, yes. okay, so I had 15 women in my graduating class, about half of whom still even work. If I go get that same percentage ratio that you did of my natural affinity group, the people I was closest with in school, not that I didn't know any guys and have good friends, of course do, and, and some of them are LPs. But first of all, my graduating class was one eighth the size. Second- What, what was, was the, how many, I think there was like, Harvard is huge. Harvard yeah. is like 500 people per class. So there's like a thousand in there, I think. Georgetown, yeah, was two, a, we were 250. So there's 500 total. Yeah, we were 115. Okay, so it's a little more intimate. I mean, you get to know the class ahead of you and behind you, hopefully, Absolutely. but not as much as your class that you boot camped in with. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, you don't really get to know all those other students, and and especially in a campus like Carnegie Mellon, it was it was a little different than a lot of students lived off campus. In fact, most did. Yeah. A lot of them were even. I, I would say even when I was there, probably. 20 to 25% were locals, people who lived in the community. And so it was really, really different from you know, going to a larger program. And, and I had come from Michigan where you know, our campus had 40,000 students on it, right? Yeah, it's a city. Uh, so it was very, very different. And I'm not critiquing at all. I'm saying the, the reality of what that individual could do to go raise a fund was, <laughs> I, was I just said, okay, thanks so much, gotta go. There was, there was nothing I was gonna gain. Uh, or learn from how he had, you know, gone about doing it that would apply to how I could do it. So, so, um, I mean, it, it, it's interesting for me to hear you, you say that you had an affinity. So you were becoming friends and hanging out more with women MBAs than the male MBAs and mm -hmm. that there were fewer of them and a lot of them are not working now and you didn't have the same, you know, group to draw on. I never thought of that. I never thought of that as being a difference. On, I, didn't get, I did not get invited to go play basketball in the evenings or play cards or lots of other things. It, it just wasn't, I mean, what people did then. And even when you go into the work world, um, you know, it, it historically has always been, you know, just a little bit different. And um, I'm not complaining. I had phenomenal opportunities as a woman in tech and have had amazing mentors and support. But it's also very clear that the networks look very different. There's just there's no ambiguity. Well, well, um, I, I remember many years ago when I was doing the Founders Club, I wanted to do an all woman panel of real GPs that were at the investment committee IC level. And I thought, all right, I'll get Sonali Duricker, who was still at Atlas before she went to Excel. I can get Ann Glover from Amadeus. And I kind of have my list. And I called up Sonali and get her on the phone and tell her this. And she's like, there's no way you're going to put me on an all-women panel. And I was like, whoa. I kind of thought she might even say, Andrew's noticing that it's like a 2% as opposed to a 50% uh, situation. And she said, absolutely not. Ann Glover said, sure, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do that. She's the you know, co-founder with Herman Hauser of a big lasting fund. Um, but, but there wasn't a lot of reception for it there. Um, I remember doing a panel in, when my CBC book came out in 2016 in Paris. And the French said to me, um, you don't have any women on the panel. And it was at BPI France. You've got to have women on the panel. I was like, oh, there's great. No, there's no panel. Yeah. <laughs> introduce me to introduce me because it just happens all I don't know any in Paris. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and then so they, they they brought in a woman who was wonderful. Um, and then we got on this topic and they just didn't want to drop the topic. It was like talking about George Floyd the week of. It was just really, really yeah, you know, well, I, I, I don't look at the world that way, Andrew. I look at it in the sense of what we've always tried to do at Illuminate is remove the barriers and create a level playing field. We've never had an interest in investing in diversity for diversity's sake, right. um, but we've always wanted to encourage it, support it, enable it. 
um, in, in any way that we could. So, I mean, I started writing white papers on this topic 10 years ago. Uh, we released our latest one last year, and it's, it, it actually is focused on MBA students because our MBA interns asked us to, you know, get the pulse of interns uh, of student um, students as to how they think about entrepreneurship and venture capital and how it's different by gender, and it is. Um, but that was the third or fourth white paper we've written on all of this because we think it's important to be open about it, to communicate about it, to enlighten people about it, um, not to, you know, invest in diversity for just pure diversity's sake. Sure, sure. I think I think it's also hard to. Well, so I think of you as being someone who just naturally went out and started a VC fund a long time ago. You've been at it for a while and you're doing well. And we liked we like your deals and so does everybody else. Um, but now there's a wave of people who've said, I'm not going to change Excel from inside of Excel. I'm going to start my own all women-led fund. And part of their pitch may be, I mean, I've always said uh, women are underrepresented in these startups. If you've ever been to Saudi Arabia or Istanbul or UAE, where, where I've gone a bit in fundraising and then get invited and speak, the startups you notice are about 50% women CEOs over there. And, and you know, your, your assumption of never having left Michigan is going to be like, women aren't driving cars there yet. You know, oh. I doubt that they're going to be running the venture back CEO role like you, when in fact, it was like 50%. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that's the case. But it, it, you come back to, the, to California and you're like, when is this place going to get past? Like what's, and I've, I've seen some crazy st statistics of, you know, how many, you know, black women CEOs have gotten past a series A. And it's a shockingly low, low, low number. So I think that these new funds that are, have nothing to do with you guys are yeah. coming out saying we're, we're going to be an all women team that 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 at least looks more we've always had the policy of read read the doc read the email a bit more uh, uh uh maybe take a call uh you know more so but but don't start investing as a diversity driven fund unless we're really saying that's who we are yeah. you know, and we're I, not I, I understand that i mean we, we take a little different approach so that business advisory council that i was just mentioning is in fact more than 50% women oh, and okay. three quarters of the members are come from diverse backgrounds. Our student internship program that we've had a hundred students graduate through and then they become scouts for us out in the market is more than 50% women and two thirds of those are from diverse backgrounds as well. Wow. That's intentional. We do those things okay. intentionally in order to not uh, in order to expand our deal flow, in order to sure. open that door wider. And when we do that, we simply see a different set of entrepreneurs than, than a lot of other people do. I'll bet. I'll bet. So, so you guys are an official magnet that attracts these people, probably. Um, and you I, know, I, I, I don't know if we are or not. If, if I look at our most recent three investments, um, I'm just thinking about this for a minute, two have male CEOs, um, but all three have a woman as a co-founder. Um, one of the companies, uh, they're both Latino um, founders, male and female. Um, one is a woman PhD. Well, the other two are both women with PhDs in AI. Um, I mean, they're, they're brilliant. <laughs> they're incredible founder CEOs, but 
um, we didn't go looking for them for that purpose at all. Right. Yeah. We were, we were never looking for um, diversity as a pillar of our strategy, but I remember meeting Rachel from Daily Harvest in her office and it was an all women founding team. Um, and they really were going after a space that might not have been obvious to every other, you know, bloke on the street. And they built, you know, we were in, I think, below 30 million on our first check. Yeah. And they raised at 1.1 billion, which looked awfully low to me, given <laughs> the growth and the numbers and the profitability of that company. So that, that that'll be a multi, multi-billion dollar outcome, um, you know, which is great on, on an all women, on an all women team. But, you know, I, I started teaching a class Monday nights in, at Chapman University in Southern California, um, 7 to 10 p.m. on venture capital. And I was kind of disappointed, for sure, when I saw the students. Uh, and it was only, it's like 45 people and something like four or five women in the group. It's like, how does that even happen? But I guess that's just, uh, you know, they, they're choosing their courses. Um, so even at that level, I don't it's know. Little... I mean, it, I, I don't know. Is Chatham is a evening weekend program, or is that a full time program? It, this is full time. I mean, so this is a like they have ten thousand students. I actually chose to do. I have the kids doing real work, <laughs> so I asked the startups, "Can I share my, my deck with the students and have them do all kinds of work on it?" So it's learn by doing, and uh, I chose to go with undergrads because I find with the undergrads you keep undergrads. them longer. I've had tons, I've had MBA interns from every top program from Stanford, Berkeley, everywhere, but um, the undergrads will work for you for at least a good two years and, oh, yeah. and they bring oh, stuff. Have, yeah. Yeah. Ours are, ours is a two year program during the class year, but they're all MBAs or um, I don't know. We've had pretty good luck with it, but we have a, uh, it's kind of a project-based program. In other words, they're not full-time interns, so to speak. Um, right, it's illegal at a lot of places. Like, like you're not supposed yeah. to really do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, um, and we have worked with undergrads. I find, frankly, it just takes a lot of my time. Um, just given they're, you know, they're not used to managing themselves. Let's put it that way in many cases. Right, I call it like, I have to be profitable if I'm not paying you. And, and how do you measure profitability there? And, you know, it's something that you learn, you know, or you could say, this is a, a loss making relationship. Oh, so, I get it. But, 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 but I, you know, I think that giving the students the exposure to venture for many of them is, is a big plus and um, to entrepreneurship in general, I think is as well. Well, and you don't have to reveal your, your uh, secret sauce secrets, but uh, with the council, how does that work formally when it's not COVID or now that COVID's hopefully nearly over? Do you have like an organized way that things are happening, that there's communication? Yeah, yeah. So we've done quite a bit. I mean, because it's been around for 10 years, we've, you know, improved the processes over time. Let's put it that way. So we have a skills inventory that we maintain of every one of our advisors that shows what boards they sit on, both public well, public, private, and nonprofit, uh, because I didn't even mention that across this group, they sit on about 80 public, uh, I'm sorry, 80 um, nonprofits, uh, nonprofit boards as well. And, um, but we also track their skills and experience across a whole series of enterprise software 
categories that we're interested in and functional roles. Have you been uh, head of HR in an AI software company? Have you been, you know, et cetera. So we have this whole thing we maintain. Our students do that for us. Uh, but literally we survey them when somebody new comes on and we, once a year we ask them to update their bios. We keep a bio book that we share with all the members so they can contact one another. We meet yep. with them physically three times a year. Physically right now is virtually. Right, um, right, right. But we only do that three times a year. And then ad hoc, I mean, we've had advisors who've made M&A introductions for us. Um, this sure. latest investment we just made was a direct referral from one of our advisory council members. We have had them take board seats within our portfolio. Uh, I don't think we've done a single deal where one or more of the advisors hasn't helped us with the due diligence. So yeah. they're they're pretty involved. Well, it's a fantastic way to really formalize it, formalize it, and make them part of your community. And it's very powerful that uh, you're saying more than fifty percent are women. You know, oh, you know, yeah. you know, right now, I think there's a lot of women aspirational VCs that are going to study this model. Um, Good. I hope so. I hope they get some value from it. Right, we right, do. Right. We certainly so, do. <laughs> so, so let's change topic and go to your true expertise, which is enterprise. What? How do you see enterprise software technology evolving? You know, over these many years, and where are we now? And what are you most excited about? Or it's a pretty broad question for you. Yeah. Well, because there are a lot of things I'm excited about, so it's hard to answer. Um, you know, fundamentally. Enterprise software is a $500 billion market. There are certain subsectors that are growing extremely rapidly. I mean, at the 100% CAGR kind of level. Um, there's also, for us, maybe equally importantly, a series of tailwinds that are happening in the enterprise space that really accelerate adoption of a variety of different technologies. So when Illuminate, when we look at an opportunity we're generally not looking at it from a technology trend, we're looking at it from a business trend perspective. And we're trying to understand what are those business trends, independent of ups and downs in the economy that are going to continue to accelerate over the next you know, five to 10 years. And so it's things like hybrid work environments and things like transparent uh, transparency of work practices um, and things like um, omni-channel communication. I could go on. So we, we every year we take a step back and we identify what we think may have changed amongst those trends and what technology platforms then are affected by that, right? And what we end up learning um, is, you know, which ones are continuing to accelerate and which ones may be declining or which ones may be saturated. Um, and we involve the advisory council in that process. We get their fee feedback on, on all of that as well. Um, we do, do that you, do, you, do you communicate with the advisory council on every single investment? We make them aware of it. We reach out to a subset of them that we think can help us with diligence on, on, on them. Right. But we don't involve them in any investment decision-making process. Okay. Um, but the other thing we do when we have one of these advisory council meetings, our, our most recent one was just um, February 1st, we invite in any new portfolio CEO to present. They're not coming in to present 
to convince anyone to invest in them. They're oh, sure. coming in with a whole set of requests. Here's what I could use your help with. I need customers in this category. I need employees of this type in this region or whatever it might be, whatever it is they're looking for help with. And, and it's, it's actually a really funny process because they're so, by the time, you know, they've, we've signed the term sheet, funded the company, they're so in selling mode, um, you know, to, to investors that when we tell them to come in and present, they actually find it really hard to come in and ask for something instead of trying to persuade people, you know, that they should invest in them. Right. I mean, if I were one of your CEOs, I wouldn't struggle. I'd be like, okay, I've got the cash in the bank. Now I want to get as much out of these people. I research them and hey, you, you're at Costco's, you're at VMware. This exactly. is what we're this is what we're really looking for now. Uh, but it's, what, it, it, it's a that's you and me. We understand the light bulb would switch and, and we've got <laughs> it. It's cute. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And maybe. Um, what's your experience been with valuations? You, know, you and I have similar paths of existing at different levels and now on the investing side for about the same time. What, um, I mean, valuations went up, right? I mean, but so did, so did the cost of vegetables at the grocery store and, and, and petrol at the pump, right? So what, what is your feelings about what valuations should be, especially on your initial checks when you're coming in at either a, real farther along spin out or 30, 80, 100K MRR type startup? So we focus on ownership, right? And, and we do because we've just had the experience of writing small checks into big rounds that don't do anything to tip our needle, right? That, that, that was, you know, some foolish behavior in fund one. Um, not, not intentional in a sense because the first close of fund one was just $6 million. So I felt like I had to write smaller checks um, until we knew what the total fund size was. Yeah, be. so you're building out some diversification to assure the LPs of uh, this is a safe that, place to be. And that's right, but but that's why we didn't do it. However, in fund two, uh, until we knew we're confident what we knew the fund size would be, so that we could write much more similar sized checks across the whole fund. Um, I, I'm telling you this not. You know, for the reason or the purpose of saying why do valuations matter? In some ways, they don't. If the ratio of increase between seed and Series A and B and C and D keeps going the way it has, which is that uh, you know A and B rounds are up fifty percent at a point in time that that seed rounds are up twenty five percent. I could yeah. do those kind of deals all day long. Yeah, right? I mean, if you were buying and selling houses, that makes sense. Right, but. <laughs> You still have to have the fund size that makes sense to have the portfolio diversity, which means um, you have that element in the mix. You also just have a much more simple element in my mind, which is how much money is too much money for a startup that hasn't proven product market fit. Yeah. And I, I think you know it's really important the, to share that, I mean, for us, some of those deals that we did in that 2008 through 11 Time frame when I was warehousing investments and doing the first investments for our early funds, they're the best performing companies we've ever had. Those entrepreneurs understood the value of a dollar. During the economic downturn, during the financial crisis, you just didn't write checks willy-nilly. People got a check, they knew, they treated it like what it was, which is gold, right? And I so I'm personally perfectly happy to see what's going on in the market right now, which is a move towards rationalism. 
Um, I do think it's going to come, you know, back to haunt some of the late stage investors. Those companies are going to have to work really hard to grow to into those valuations. valuations. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I, um, we like to invest in late seed where the companies have like a hundred k MRR as a first entry point, but we reserve five shots of fun for. I want, I want to be in before the company is founded. So they can call you and say, I'm in. And then, you know, this, you know, they just kind of, they can recruit the employees and these people are not going to run out of money fast. And I knew them their last, their last company. So I'm old enough to have a few shots and we can afford to lose them because of the diversification. But I found that valuations of my sweet spot of you now look like you've got something repeatable that we can send out to our LP base, which is our kind of unformalized council and really move the needle for you. And then we can grow that 100 to 500 real fast. And then I can make a list of 200 VCs like you that I know that I think I could get in at the right time and and then make sure that thing's oversubscribed, right? I found that the valuations for a company with just three months of data of, I went from one to four customers, started getting like nuts, like 70 million, you know, valuations and like, you know, and, and we, we, we walk away from those, Andrew. That's well, not even well, yeah. And and then and then there was a period of time when in last year in 2021, kind of late spring to maybe October, it just felt like I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go back to some later stage companies, not the pre-IPO tiger stuff, but but kind of series C and say, you know what? This company is raising at a 32 million valuation, has a hundred employees in real revenue. And a, and a multiple of pre-money to actual today's ARR, not December 31st. Yeah, yeah not future. <laughs> not my, my, you know, people going with like, so we're going to end the year, we're going to end the year at this. It's like, wait, 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 what about now? Or can I invest later at today's valuation? Or can we yeah. do this the opposite? So, so how do you handle that? Because, you know, I, I think the highest post-money valuation we've ever done is maybe 35. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, um, and we're, you know, we've invested in companies that were already at a million in ARR. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't live by this, but I've never invested in a company without putting in an internal memo, what Mm -hmm. the ratio of pre-money valuation is to right now ARR. Yeah. You know, it's just something I think about. And when things were getting very spicy um, for my kind of sweet early pre-Series A spot, I went back and started putting money into existing portfolio companies and other companies that we've known for a long time that said, we'd love to have your network support us. And the ratios just looked really solid and safe. Whereas if if you're investing at moments of insanity, pre-money valuation because the stock market, like when you said switch from a service to a product and you'll get a 10 to 12 to, to twelve million valuation, I was trying not to laugh thinking there's some guy listening to this going, what? I expect a 47X like Zoom at its peak on the public markets, but that changed, thank God. It didn't, it changed very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully it's not just valuations, it's about not prematurely spending money on things that are just dumb investment decisions at the CEO level. Like let's hire a head of social networking for business development when there's no product yet, you know. I look at it, 
you know, it, it is not just about valuations, but here's, you know, the other aspect, as you know, where valuations come into play. You overprice this first round. You find it hard to raise the next one. It That's might right. be a flat or a down round. That's very discouraging to the founders, to the entrepreneurs. It's not, doesn't matter that much to us as investors. We're going to, we've reserved, we're going to not write another check. If we really like the company, we're going to support them. Um, or you have to do a seed extension of some kind. You know, I just, I really believe take the right amount of money at the right valuation at the right time. And it's good for everyone. It's not about it being just good for the investor by any means. You know, I, I took my class through, I made a spreadsheet of the journey of the founder. And I say, there's two of you. So it's 50-50 ownership. That's how it starts. Now, maybe there's five of you, but let's just call it two. Now you do a little advisory round and give these people some equity for free. Maybe you gave off 5%. Maybe they put in a tiny bit of money. So now you're at 49.5, you know, like, and the, and, the, and the funny thing is that if you show how much dilution you get, if let's put this entire ship at risk and call it a 40 million pre to optimize for dilution for founders and insiders, or let's set it so that if we spend that money on this runway of 18 months or 24 months, we may not get all these customers, but we know we will have built this and done that because we went to work every day and we will land and expand with that customer. And so yeah. you know that the pre-money should be higher than this post based on what we know we can achieve, even in a rainy day scenario, that, that, that if, you, if you push it too high, you're literally, these founders might've been working on that for seven years and made it look like an overnight launch success to you. But to put all those years of work to risk over, and this is what the spreadsheet shows of what you'll own at the time of exit, right? what the liquidation stack is. And you literally went crazy with your wife and kids and spouse or husband just over this difference, you know, but, but, but anyway, people have to live through it themselves. You know, if it's your first time, you might just be gunning for gunning for dilution. Let me close on exits. So at this point, you list some of the exits, I think on, on, on your website. Um, what, what is your, I mean, you've got the advisory council that's already been impacting the exit for some of your companies. What's your sense of the exit market for venture returns these days? Well, obviously it's changing as we speak that the market's shifting somewhat at this very moment, but there still is a, well, let me step back. There's a huge amount of capital dry powder in the market. It's not just, um, you know, for follow-on rounds. It is all of these uh, mid-market buyout funds. It is all of the private equity funds. It is uh, all of the corporate groups that have a great deal of capital and not a lot of intellectual property growth over the recent years. Um, so I think particularly in, in the enterprise space, the opportunity for exits remains very strong. Um, and I think what'll be interesting to see is whether that remains true in, in other categories you know, in the consumer internet world and in, in some other categories that are less, uh, that are more sensitive to economic downturn, put it that way. Sure. So from, from your chair, it sounds like 
you think that interest rates could play a role in a discounted cash flow and that um, the, you know, do you see the economy as being, I mean, well, I'll just ask you, do you think we're going into a recession or do you think we're, are, are we heading flat down? We're certainly going into an inflationary period. We're already in it. Uh, are we going into a recession? I certainly hope not. Or raising of interest rates. Raising of interest rates to deal with inflation will have an impact on how much you discount uh, future cash flows, right? I think it has to. I think yeah. it has to. And, and, so um, that should impact what we're doing. Yeah, it should. I mean, it, it, as an investor, if you suddenly have an option to put, um, you know, your capital to work in a variety of different ways that um, seemed unattractive previously, you'll give that consideration. Uh, I will say, though, I, I had a very interesting conversation with a banker recently. There are some anomalies in the market today that aren't the same as any other inflationary period we've gone through, including all of this PPP money, the rebates on retaining employees. And what he literally said to me was, we have huge deposits and nowhere to put them because no one is borrowing money. Oh, so it's That's like Japan. It was almost like Japan. Super interesting. Yeah, that, that is interesting. And, and we've got, um, we have a number of companies that have that Opco, Propco set up where we've been able to introduce them to some of our LPs in Japan that got them crazy large, like 300 million plus lines of credit. Um, yeah. It's in inter interesting for us to see if we onshore Japanese, you know, you know problems. Thought. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. explored that. It's an interesting thought. Well, but um, yeah, I think I do believe it has an impact. However, as you know, good companies can always raise capital. That's right. Um, and the demand for these B2B solutions uh, with the kind of tailwinds COVID has created around, you know, hybrid work environments and security and, um, you know, multi-channel communications and all, uh, that's not going away. Yeah. And I think you've always been, uh, I've always been big on, um, can we write software to get an API to that data? Because if I can, if I can automate a human workflow and then I can plug it into like Zillow type data of some kind, and moneyball this thing algorithmically and on a big industry, like who cares if the economy is going up or down? If we're finding companies that the valuation's lower, great. Valuation's higher. The valuation's gonna be high when a lot of funders are gonna find that great founder. A good founder is gonna have a funder regardless of the economic cycle. But the problem of getting us illuminated and out of the cave is not right. gonna go away with the fed raising interest rates and you know the exit terminal exit value perceived being lower if you can you can moneyball a big industry um it's not just about software it's about the data and i think you've always kind of talked about the data uh, right. so i believe i believe those first principle fundamentals of change that must happen at the enterprise level is uh, gonna remain good there's a lot of vcs out there but there's maybe more founders than there have been ever. Well, I mean, one of the things when we, when we just did this recent research I was mentioning with MBA students, I almost fell out of my chair when we got the data back because one of the many questions we asked was about what's your level of interest in entrepreneurship? And if you're interested, what are you already doing today? 
this was across 20 of the top MBA schools in, in, in North America. And the 85% of the respondents said that they had a strong interest in entrepreneurship. I was expecting yeah. maybe 50 or better, but 80, and they weren't saying necessarily right now immediately, but that they saw somewhere in their future um, that they would seek to be an entrepreneur. That's incredible. Well, do you know, uh, when the dot-com bubble happened, uh, um, I had a lot of friends in the MBA world and people were jokingly saying, hey, you know what B2B stands for now? It means back to banking. And you know what B2C, stand, you know what B2C stands for now? Back to consulting. We're going to get jobs working at Goldman and McKinsey and forget being, you know, Bill Gates and, you know, Steve Jobs now. And it's all reversed again. Right, right, right. I think it's like um, I my first job out of undergrad was a Unix headhunter. And if you spoke to a guy, so when you say sun and all that, I know all these places, right? So when you say, when you said to an IIT and, oh, and here are the stock options, they were like, I don't care about the options. Show me the hourly rate. I'm a 1099. I've optimized my car and everything. And, and then they see their friend from the IIT take the stop option, options working for Jim Clark at SGI. And that was worth something. So now they're like, I want my stock options and I'm not just a 1099 anymore. And so I but think- I want that, But I want my 1099 too, by the way. I want to have my cake and eat it too. Well, we can give you warrants then. It, we can have your, <laughs> you can have your cake and, and eat it too. Problem solved. But, but I think that, that that is the thing. Uh, I had Alan Patrickoff, you know, from Graycroft and- of course. Apex on the pod recently. And I said, so 50 years, what's changed? And you know, he's been a VC for 50 years. Exactly. And he said, well, you know, when I would speak at an MBA program in the past, say, raise your hand if you want to go into a startup. They all wanted to go to Goldman Sachs and be masters of the universe there or consulting or large corporation. And he wow. said, now that's the big change that uh, in this culture, it's, it's been a total flipping there. You know, the opportunities for entrepreneurship have never been this expansive, okay? You can do it from anywhere. It doesn't take a great deal of capital to get started. Um, you can even do it part-time and, and not risk your current position when you get started. Uh, and, and I think COVID really taught people a lot of lessons around the importance of self-sufficiency and, um, you know, independent thinking and, and a lot of other things. And I, I don't think that's going to turn back. I don't think suddenly students are going to be chasing after investment banking jobs. I mean, there was no list of angels to go to either. Like literally, yeah. like, like there, it was hard. There weren't any. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was like, how am I supposed to find an angel? I'm from New Jersey. I don't know where to go. Whereas- okay, I'm from Holland, Michigan. Okay, at least right. Jersey, New York was at least close by. <laughs> right, so, so, so I think, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a great place to end the session, but uh, it's, they've never had it easier on a whole bunch of fundamentals beyond just AWS on, on getting started. And I, don't and- wanna, I wanna say easy, Andrew. They've never had more opportunity to take the risk. It's still sure. a risk. Um, but I encourage it. It's, it's what I did. It's the kind of thing you did. I, I think it's one of the best things you can ever do. Well, I think it's always great to have an operator turned VC who truly can compassionately understand what that risk is like at different stages of their careers, even when it's, I raised it too high evaluation. Oh my God, let's get the cash in the door. I got payroll to meet. So 
uh, great to see you. We should have our quarterly call on deal, deal flow more often. Make sure we, we, we don't miss that, especially in that it can be done over Zoom. And thanks so much, Cindy. Best of luck and see you soon. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye.